Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Today's topics are Omicron and using insight for career advancement. Our first speaker is Ari Cement, who is a pulmonologist and manages the medical staff at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. Since the outbreak of COVID in March 2020, he has seen thousands of COVID patients. Today, we'll hear from Ari about what he's seeing in the hospital right now for the Omicron patient. I want to find out how Ari intends to treat Omicron patients depending upon their age, pre-existing conditions, and previous vaccination status. What is the efficacy for monoclonal antibodies with the Omicron variant? Are we seeing similar pneumonia cases as compared to the old COVID variants? And what should be the immediate steps as soon as we find out we've tested positive for COVID? I want to know about the new trials for polyclonal antibodies available only for the unvaccinated and who should sign up for the trial. And I want to hear about the new Merck and Pfizer pills that have just been released. And I've heard there's a short supply of what we can do about that. Our second guest today is David Cromfeld. David is a former venture capitalist, Booz Allen consultant, and corporate executive at Ameritech. David has a new book entitled Remarkable, Proven Insights to Accelerate Your Career. It has been a Wall Street Journal and Publishers Weekly bestseller. David focuses on the importance of insight or out-of-the-box thinking that can help you solve problems in a way that others miss. David's work process uses unusual data sets and asking tons of questions to discover these insights. David uses his own real-life experience to teach negotiation. He does this by finding common ground and learning your counterpart's perspective to get to a solution. You're going to love David Kronfeld's insights because it will help you improve your performance at work. I'd like to welcome back to the show Ari Sumet. We met Ari probably almost 11 months ago. Uh, Ari is a pulmonologist at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. Um, Ari, when we last spoke, we didn't have Omicron. We now do. How, what's going on in your hospitals? Are you packed? Who's coming in? How does it differ uh, given this latest outbreak? I would say the difference right now, most notably, is that the outpatient centers are really being packed. The emergency rooms are being loaded. And the uh, hospital, thankfully, is is picking up, but it's not uh, as loaded at all. So uh, when I was in the hospital with you, how many patients, how many floors did we have as, a, as an example? Um, well, I can't give the specifics for our hospital per se, because uh, I'm not- uh, Fine, did you have a floor, did you have two floors? Yeah, well, we had, we had at least three to four floors of COVID okay. packed. Um, and now, now it's a little tricky because I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor, but the difference with the Omicron so far is that you're not necessarily admitted, thankfully, with COVID pneumonia. So it seems to have a different phenotype. There is a lot of sinusitis and, of course, respiratory symptoms and coughing, but there's not a lot of COVID pneumonia per se. So the pulmonologists are not routinely getting called for, let's say, a Omicron admission. All right, let's break that down. So I guess I didn't appreciate this point that the disease doesn't manifest itself in a, in a, in a pneumonia like I had. Um, would describe when you get a chest X-ray now for an Omicron patient, how does it distinguish itself from a previous patient? Or is it is just it's the frequency or is the, is, does the X-ray look different? Right, so all this is still evolving here in South Florida, but... You know, as you heard already in South Africa, thankfully, you know, the 
the illness is, is a different illness than the, the other COVID, but it's also different because it's not attacking the lungs in the same way, hopefully and thankfully. So you're not developing that bilateral strange peripheral infiltrate. It's more of a really bad flu-like illness for the people that are, are hospitalized and they're they're there because they're completely drained they might have a little renal insufficiency you know it's like a really bad case of flu i would say that that's you know people that are admitted for the flu are most often admitted for flu-like illness and not necessarily pneumonia this is how this omicron is so far playing out well it sounds like that's just great news in the sense that um the weakness of the human body was the over-exaggerated response to the disease, flooding the lungs with water, uh, creating a, an infection and creating pneumonia. You're saying this one, um, you're not getting that, you're getting something else. When you say like there's renal problems, it's like they didn't have enough fluids, is that is that the issue? Yeah, I think, I think the best way where you're driving at is to look at it like this. In South Africa, there's 70% less hospitalizations compared to the Delta for Omicron versus the Delta, right? Even in Scotland, 60% less, England, 40 to 50% less, right? But when you're talking about so many cases, here's the kicker. Omicron is is skyrocketing and it's only going to get worse for a yeah. period of time. So if you, for instance, initially they were saying, 1.2% of all cases in South Africa were being admitted versus 20% of the Delta cases. But if you take 1% of 30,000, you know, a day, that's that adds up to a lot of hospitalizations. So we're going to see a lot of hospitalizations, but we're not going to see the type that we were used to before, which was really only COVID pneumonia. We were only admitting people that had hypoxemia or low oxygen. Now it's a different, it's a different beast. So I, I suspect that let's say I had pre-existing conditions, maybe something with a heart or something, some other major organ, I would be coming in because uh, my heart would be under pressure. Um, is that the sort of thing we're talking about? Exactly. Conditions? It's going to be people more than likely that just can't handle the bad flu. And a lot of fear too. Um, I, I recall talking to an infectious disease doctor who's following a lot of the patients on the floor, and he's like, "Wow, this is completely different. You know, maximum one to two liters of oxygen uh, for the majority of patients. I'm in the ICU, for instance, right now, and you know there aren't that many of the COVID pneumonia patients at all. You know, we have leftovers from the Delta." And we are seeing, remember, it's 90% Omicron, but there is 10% Delta. So we probably, the COVID pneumonia patients probably have that bug, not the Omicron. You know, when I met with your partner in crime, Dr. Tuda, who uh, runs infectious disease at Mount Sinai, uh, what he told me when I first met with him when when I was admitted, he said he had seen thousands of patients and they were all exactly the same. And he said, I know exactly what's going to happen to you tomorrow. I know what's going to happen to you the day after that. And I know what you look like when I release you from the hospital 10 days from now. It seems like that story is now flipped on its head. This is a different patient with a different series of problems. And they sound more unique and specialized depending upon the pre-existing conditions that that patient has. Right. And not only that, I think that's true, 100% what, what you just said. But I think what we're going to see here locally is that the Omicron will 
Im- depress the immune system. I have already seen this in a couple of patients, and then leads you to develop complications from that depressed immune system. Like I have a bacterial pneumonia here who has COVID positive. And so that is that is what I think we're going to start seeing. As opposed to COVID pneumonia, the people that we might see is COVID-related pneumonia. One of the, the long-term implications of COVID is this very long-dated fatigue, uh, brain fog, and the like. Um, do you think that was a, a causation from the pneumonia? Or do you think it's some other element to the disease? And it, do you suspect that if it was from the pneumonia that Omicron won't be causing that long that long hauler problem? Right, so obviously it's too early to tell about the long haul syndrome from the Omicron, but I think this is gonna be a completely different disease, like a coronavirus, O1H1, you know, they have four other coronaviruses. This is a different one. I think it's gonna be more like the flu. In fact, uh, we were talking with another infectious disease doctor, there is overlap in the testing. Some people are testing positive for the flu, but they really have Omicron. There is, yeah, the, there is cross-reactivity with some of the flu antigen somehow and the, this coronavirus antigen that it comes out positive on the flu test. And I don't think that's, I, I think it's, it's going to act like the flu. That's really all the people that I, that I am seeing with the, it's almost exactly like the flu. I'm drained of energy. I have sinus stuff and, you know, stuffiness. I lost my taste and smell of a few of them much less than before, but those are related to the sinus congestion so far. Um, one of the things you told me in January was if you're 80 years old, go get that monoclonal antibodies ASAP. What do you, how do you view it this time? Right. So as you know, the state of Florida is quickly uh, being inundated. All the sites for monoclonal antibodies are being inundated and they're being used up. And I set up probably over 100 or 150 in the last like four days, maybe 100. It's crazy. But the truth is, it's unclear if it works. So Regeneron, uh, they're even updating the EUA in the next couple of days. It doesn't have in vitro activity against Omicron. Neither does BAM, uh, the, the combination bam lenivimab and I forgot the second drug that it's combined with. It doesn't have the one monoclonal antibody that does have effect is the sotruvimab, sotrovimab, which we don't have available here. But anecdotally, I can tell you for sure, patients that we've sent who've gotten the Regeneron say they feel better. A lot, a lot of them feel better. So I don't know what to make of that. So we're giving it to them because that's the best thing that has that was out there versus the uh, other COVID variants. But uh, I suspect that once the Pfizer drug comes in, the pill, um, and maybe the Merck pill as well, that we're going to quickly stop this monoclonal antibody infusion, basically because of the in vitro ineffectiveness. What about um, steroids? I know I responded very positively to the steroids. What, uh, what, what's going on there? How, how, but I, I suspect that the, you use the steroids uh, as a response to the, the pneumonia. Does it have any applicability here? Right. So that's gonna, the jury's out on that too because uh, you know, a lot of people will have lingering symptoms like sinus symptoms and 
So typically for a flu-like illness, if you have persistent symptoms, we, you know, we typically do use steroids for the sinus congestion and it usually works. So I think, and I've already done it on a couple of patients who've had uh, COVID sinusitis here, and it seems to work. But that's going to be, you're right, the, the utility of steroids in Delta COVID and the other COVID variants was when you had a hypoxemia related low oxygen related to the COVID. Now, because it's not affecting the lungs, many people will not be using steroids. The majority of people won't be on steroids for this Omicron. Uh, Sometimes if you get a sinus infection, you choose antibiotics. Will that be a popular uh, medical response, medication response? Yeah, I think the number one medication that will probably be used is, again, a Z-Pak because people are so used to using it and, and it has anti-inflammatory properties, it sort of makes sense. So we're going to start seeing that. Uh, and regular sinusitis uh, medicines like uh, sinus rinses followed by... In, in that's that, tea, that's that, uh, the, the, the teapot? Yeah, neti pot. Neti pot, sure. yeah. And I think the, the if there was one, you know, Flonase, I shouldn't say the names, like intranasal steroid. Intranasal steroids will be probably effective. Um, let's run through th- uh, three hypotheticals. Uh, you're 21 years old. You're coming home from college. You just got COVID. Ari, what should, I, what, what should my child be doing? Yeah, more than likely, if the, if the child has no immune deficiencies, um, it would just be sitting tight and drinking, hydrating, um, and you know, doing some sinus rinses, potentially Flonase, that sort of thing, and just supportive care. How many days after the COVID test comes back can that child go back into the world? Right, so this is gonna change probably on Monday. They have to change the isolation guidelines because they're really outdated. But as of today, it's 10 days from the symptoms, which actually was a change. It used to be 10 days from the test. Now it's 10 days from the symptoms. So let's say you started Sunday, but you got your test on Wednesday. You're, you would be out the next Wednesday. So it's 10 days from the symptoms as opposed to before. But I think they're going to change it to five days probably on Monday. Really? It's, yep. So how, your contagious period is, is really a very short period of time. That's great news too, right? What I have noticed with this Omicron business, I think that your onset of disease is faster. You catch it. It's very catchy. It's five uh-huh. times as catchy, five times as catchy as the other one. So you get it faster, but it also leaves faster. That's great news. It's good for the people that it leaves. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that was the 20-year-old. Let's pick a 50-year-old next. 50-year-old, no pre-existing conditions. Oh, shit, my kid just gave it to me. Now what? Ari, what should yeah. we do? So that, that's why it gets tricky for the, the reason why you're even testing, because the truth is right now the monoclonal antibody infusions are sort of drying up. Uh, I would have said like a week ago when there was a glut of them, yeah, go for it. Uh, today, I would actually say there are, there are actually clinical trials out there. There is a drug... Uh, I forgot the name, but SAB Therapeutics, um, they're doing an NIH clinical trial, active two clinical trial, looking at polyclonal antibody infusions. That's basically um, uh, sort of like the monoclonal antibody cocktail, but it's polyclonal and it's made by injecting horses in their lymph nodes, however they make it, but it basically targets the spike proteins more 
more generally. So potentially it could be beneficial and it's safe, but it's effective versus Omicron. So in other words, if you if you go into a trial here, here in Miami Beach, they have several centers, you actually have a 50% chance of getting a medicine that at least has in vitro activity versus this uh, Omicron. So that's sort of interesting. So that would be a possible. Now, you, you said a 50-year-old without, without uh, risk factors actually would be like that 20-year-old. Again, there is a chance of hospitalization, but it doesn't look like it's COVID pneumonia per se. So I would feel a little more comfortable sitting tight. So it, when you say sitting tight, do you want me to go get a pack or not? I mean, that would be completely not, you know, medical. I, I mean, I would probably do it because there's nothing else. I wouldn't use ivermectin or Plaquenil like the other, you know, docs would say. But, um, you know, Zithromax would be, you know, potentially worthwhile, but it's not proven. All right, let's review. If you're 50 and you're vaccinated and you develop a sinus infection, then take a ZPAC. You just mentioned this polyclonal trial, which is only available for the unvaccinated. Let's change our hypothetical example. You have a 50-year-old unvaccinated COVID-positive patient. What do you want them to do? Oh, yes. So the unvaccinated person, I I would strongly recommend, I mean, you have to try to get the monoclonal antibody. Hopefully they'll have the sotrubimab. It so happens that we're talking at an interesting window of time right now. We're running out of the monoclonal and even the monoclonal we have doesn't work potentially. And we're a week away from the Pfizer pill. So uh, we're literally a week away from what could be a very effective treatment and it is a very effective against the Omicron. So that person will need to get the Pfizer pill and need to be, um, you know, put in front of the list. But in the meantime, this week, you would try to get the Regeneron. At least it's better than nothing. And, you know, if the unvaccinated are the ones that I'm worried about with this Omicron. Do you care if you got two vaccinated or have, you know, three? Yeah, it, uh, we're seeing quite a few of three vaccinated people, triple vaccinated who have the Omicron, but it does seem that they're protected versus severe illness, probably because there is more than just antibody response, probably a T-cell immunity, a different part of the immune system fighting against the overall uh, virus. So I think that they're going to be better off even if they don't get anything. Okay. Um, you are 80 and it, it, it hits you a little bit. Um, we'll do unvaccinated, vaccinated, respectively. Unvaccinated 80-year-old. Yeah, unvaccinated 80-year-old. Again, I would push for it if you can't. So now here's a good question, Larry, that has to be answered. Would you send the unvaccinated 80-year-old with Omicron for Regeneron, which does not have in vitro activity, or would you, but you're 100% guaranteed to get it, let's say you could find the place or find the concierge doctor has it, or would you send them to a clinical trial, which has 50% placebo and 50% something that you know has Omicron activity? I think the answer is you probably would do the 50%, you know, Omicron activity. That's what I would do. And then hope that the Pfizer pill comes because the, all those trials allow you to take, you know, if something comes along on the market, that's, you know, that shows efficacy. So that's what I would do for my patients. And do you distinguish between the vaccinated and unvaccinated there, the eight-year-olds? 
Yeah, if they're, if they're vaccinated, you know, I think there is maybe a placebo effect to getting that monoclonal antibody Regeneron at least, you know, so I would I would probably push for that. And again, anecdotally, there are people that respond. So the vaccinated person, I'd feel more comfortable with just Regeneron. Okay. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of weeks? I mean, people are still out and about. Omicron is super contagious. The vaccine doesn't seem to stop. Uh if you get it from shedding it with the vaccine, this is, we saw what exponentials look like when things weren't as contagious as this. If it's 5X contagious and R naught is three and not one and a half, I mean, oh my God, the whole population is going to get this thing in a few weeks. Um, how's this going to play out? So this is a fascinating conversation because we have to learn from history, right? We learn from the H1N1. We have a lead time. In H1N1, years ago, we had a lead time. We learned from New Zealand how they dealt with it. Now we have South Africa. We have the UK, Scotland. They've already had their, they're at their peak. You know, now South Africa is actually coming down. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come down as fast as it went up in South Africa. That's what we're seeing there. So we have to study the South African experience and see exactly how it's been. Speak to some of your South African friends and find out what happened, what was effective there. So I, I guess I'm shocked by the South African experience. I don't understand uh, just the pure math. That if you have an R naught of three and a population where the vaccine has um, limited efficacy, why it, why it just doesn't go straight to the moon? Why did it top up so quickly? I'm just baffled. So I don't have to be South African to think about that question in an abstract form. Ari, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, some people are protected even with two vaccines. I don't think they had triple vaccines in, in South Africa. They all have double. They had a very, very high vaccination rate, but it was double, I believe. So, you know, you're going to see higher spike. And then now they probably all have it and it's coming down very fast. So I think we're going to see the same thing. I think it's going to be six weeks from the time that it hit here, probably like four days ago. So I think we have six weeks of question mark. But I think it's going to be impacted on this uh, with the Merck pill and the Pfizer pill is going to be coming out. I think in the next two weeks, there's going to be a sort of like a mad rush. Everybody's going to call, you know, for favors. How can I get the Pfizer pill? That's the biggest challenge coming up is going to be the allocation of medicine during a pandemic hitting. This is like the worst time for the medicine to come out when everybody needs it. That's I don't awesome. think we'll, we'll ever have a, something like this. You know, It was planned that a Pfizer would come out with their pill when it was a relative lull. So then you have it, you could produce it. And have It's going to be produced at a time where it's maximally being sucked up. Um, I also imagine there's going to be a huge rush to enter the hospital. How, how is Mount Sinai preparing for the, you know, few, couple thousand patients who have to come in over the next six weeks? Well, I specifically can talk on, on behalf of Mount Sinai. How about a hospital that looks just like it in Miami Beach? A, a hospital. <laughs> yeah, I think that we, we have to be, the ERs around locally are very, very smart. And they're trying not to admit people that really don't need to be admitted. I think that's the key. And one thing we learned from the prior pandemic phases is that we can um, branch out 
pretty quickly. Like, you know, the governor did a good job at least opening up things like the convention center. We could, we can mobilize other places if we need to do it. I mean, I'm not in any talks about that in the hospital. I'm not saying that's even talked about. I'm just saying I'm confident that if we do get a rush, I think we're we're prepared enough to know how to take the next steps. The emergency room doctors are know when to push that button. In March of 2020, everyone said the weakness is we're not going to have enough vents, enough ventilators. And then we found out that the ventilators actually killed you, so we're not going to use them. And then when um, when I entered the hospital, you brought in that 35-liter super-duper oxygen machine for me, and you said we just have enough of them. But this time, that won't be the, the, the constraint either. What will the constraint be in terms of hospital supplies that uh, – are going to be in high demand? And this is completely postulating for me, but that's a great question. I think, first of all, still it needs to be seen. Maybe there will be pneumonia, you know, when you take the percentages, you know, down. But assuming that won't be the case, I think just having staff, if you look at the New York Times, they discussed staff being out because they're hit. I think that's going to be the biggest constraint. We're going to, you know, potentially you have to think about the doctors and the nurses. That's why our isolation period has to be lower, five days, because we'll be able to bounce back right away. So uh, I think staffing and things like dinner and lunch and physical therapy and things like that would be more of an issue, I imagine, than the actual ventilator high flow. Would you be willing to take in volunteers? to help give the food, change the sheets? Um, I guess it depends on which hospital. You know, years ago, many, many years ago, like 100 years ago when they had the pandemic and the flu pandemic, they used, you know, medical students were, you know, even in New York and during the first phase, they used medical students, people that didn't even graduate yet who were rounding, you know. So I could see, you know, hopefully, I don't think that's going to happen here, but I've been wrong predicting other things. Can I give you the silver lining and you push back? Um, Omicron doesn't sound that dangerous. Um, It's pushed out Delta. Um, Everyone's going to get this thing. Everybody. It doesn't sound like it's going to kill that many people. Um, Will it provide um, equivalent to a vaccine to the unvaccinated? Will it give... um, another response function for the T-cells against a a future variant? Could this end COVID for all practical purposes if everyone gets Omicron? Right. I mean, I like the silver lining. I think the silver lining, but remember, everything is a percentage. So when you have so many people, there are people that unfortunately are going to pass away for the lesson that we're going to all learn. I I just, my gestalt is that it's like you're saying that we're going to, get faster to a herd immunity. But then what about the next uh, COVID variant? So I think the the silver lining really from Larry Bernstein should be the pan-COVID vaccine that's coming out that they're working on. There is a vaccine that is in phase two trials that is actually for every single variant. So I think that's a better silver lining, although that that's good what you said too. And the other medicines that each medicine has a problem, like the Merck pill has maybe not 100% effective, maybe it's 30% effective, but the Pfizer pill has a lot of interactions. So every, every silver lining has a black lining, whatever, but the overall positive of 
getting to herd immunity, at least for now, and then waiting for this COVID vaccine that could cover everything would be very optimistic. Why would it cover everything? I would have thought that when we look at, um, in an mRNA example, they showed a spike protein, they, they figured that out, and then this new variant is a 35 mutations or whatever the number is uh, on the original spike protein. What, why do you think the pan would work? Why, why, how can we predict what it's doing? What, what is it about the spike protein that uh, we, can, we can cover every potential mutation? Yeah I, mean, yeah, I don't know exactly how this new vaccine works. It's in phase two trials. I know Dr. Topol, T-O-P-O. Oh, yeah, I had him on the show. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. So he's, uh, you know, he's talked about that a lot. I think he's involved in that. Um, but that is the, that ultimate. is the next. But yeah, that's the ultimate for this, for this uh, pandemic. All right, I close each session on a note of optimism. Ari, what are you optimistic about? Besides the, uh, the Panglossian uh, all-encompassing yeah. vaccine. Yeah, that, that's a lot to be optimistic about. But I am optimistic that in six weeks' time, we'll have so many new things in the armamentarium, pills, vaccines, a wherewithal that we've accomplished from our previous experience that we could handle these things more effectively. And... And, uh, you know, hopefully deal with a little bit of pandemonium, especially with the holidays coming um, and just orderly conduct as we are good human beings and helping one another. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Let's move on to our second speaker. David Kronfeld. David is a former venture capitalist, Booz Allen consultant and corporate executive at Ameritech. David has a new book out entitled Remarkable proven insights to accelerate your career. David, why don't you begin your six-minute presentation? My topic of conversation is how to become more successful in business. There are many skills and talents that play a role in one's career and success. The most important skill is being insightful. I refer to insightfulness as seeing and understanding those things that are not as obvious to peers and superiors. It is the difference between book smarts and street smarts. Insightfulness can be learned with proper tools and some practice. One doesn't need to be a genius to become extraordinarily insightful. Be very wary of advice you may get from experienced, successful people regarding how to become successful. Most advice is one cannot succeed if one fails. But the reverse is not true. Not failing doesn't guarantee success either. It is referred to as necessary but not sufficient. This advice of not failing will get you to play in the major league, but it is silent on how to actually win games once you start playing at that level. The second example relates to confusing the terms great leaders and great managers great leader is almost irrelevant to reach top management levels. There is a difference between a great leader and great manager, and the two should not be confused. Great leaders are the people that can lead, people who can talk you into doing something and motivate you into doing it in the best possible way. People can motivate you to do the wrong things too, but they are great leaders. 
It's great management that makes the difference, not great leaders. Because great management means managing people to accomplish something that ended up being the right thing to accomplish. To be a great manager, one also needs to be a great leader because if one is unable to motivate and lead, one would not be able to accomplish much either. Focus on being a competent manager first and only then worry about how to be an effective leader, not the other way around. David, thank you for your remarks. I want to open with a quick story. I went to Israel on vacation, and we signed up for an IDF anti-terrorism training session. We were put together in a team of four people, and the young Israeli female soldier asked our group of four to choose our leader. And I said, the question answers itself. It's Debbie August. She's amazing. She's a total take-charge person, and she can lead us anywhere. Her husband, Glenn, readily agreed. How did your experience in the Israeli army help you distinguish between leadership and management? That's a very, very good question. There is a significant difference between a military leader versus a business leader. In the military, in 99% of the cases, you only lead. You are told what to do by higher-ups, and you just need to execute well. That is completely the opposite in business. In business, you are rarely told what to do. You are expected to evaluate the situation yourself, dissect it, make all the observations, arrive at conclusions, make recommendations, and execute. You may need to get approval of higher-ups, but the role is completely different. In a military, a great leader is the one who can do the leadership role. In a business side, it is the one who first comes up with the right solutions, and the leading itself becomes secondary. In the book, The Desert Fox, the biography of German General Rommel, the author describes Rommel's battle management philosophy. Rommel would tell his lieutenants to take that hill, and he would also explain the battlefield objective, like not losing the river was critical, and the hill was a secondary item. In the fog of war, Rommel wanted to give his lieutenants agency to achieve the overall objective. The best managers give agency to their people, even in the military. The objective is to have a successful outcome. How do I accomplish that outcome? You need to have multiple people perform different tasks to be well-coordinated, but more importantly, they need to understand exactly what the tasks are. And since they're always surprises, nothing goes according to plan, they need to be able to improvise on the spot how to react to changing environment, changing conditions. It is extremely important to make sure that everybody on the team from top to bottom understands precisely what the outcome that is expected, where is some leeway to make changes, what is a do or die, or what is not. It's the compromises day-to-day in the field that will yield the outcome you want. When you evaluate a venture capital investment in tech, do you pay more attention to the technology or the quality of the management team? Business plans and technology change 
all the time. Does that mean we should focus more on the quality of management and their ability to adapt? I want to make sure that the technology in principle is of real value. I'm willing to accept the observation that you made that it is likely to change. A change in technology depends on how the architecture of that technology was built. If the technology was built to be flexible and accommodate specific changes over time, then you'll be able to make the changes with good management. But if the technology was not built with an architecture that has flexibility for changes, then no good managers will be able to succeed. I want to talk about new product development. We had Michael Hiltzik and John Gertner on this program speak about Bell Labs and Xerox Park. These industrial labs had great technology, great scientists, and brilliant ideas like the mouse. But it went nowhere. There was this concept that if we put great engineers across disciplines together and give them sufficient funding, that they would change the world. And then these labs were closed. Why do these famous industrial labs fail in new product innovation while entrepreneurial startups succeeded? Most of the technological breakthroughs that really change things don't happen by design. It is a creative ingenuity by a single individual who changes the paradigm. Successful technologies do not come from predetermined plans on how to build it, but rather an innovation that occurred by an individual that saw a tremendous breakthrough. The innovation comes first, only then the questions of how we build a product that is commercially successful becomes important. The reason that industrial parks don't work all that well is because they lack real innovation. Real innovations are less predictable, do not necessarily depend on money or the number of people involved. A corporate environment, as a result, is not very conducive to innovation because an inventor can be unproductive for five years and then suddenly in the sixth year it happens. In a corporate environment, they won't allow you to be unproductive for an extended period of time. The large corporation is good at many things but not necessarily inventing new technologies. So if I were to manage a large corporation, my strategy would be not to invent anything, but rather I would look to buy small companies that invented something and then put my corporate resources where my strengths are, which is to make commercial product and support it. Let's change topics to the rule of 80-20. It has such applicability in life in every dimension. Please explain the rule of 80-20 and how it applies. Uh, That's fascinating. It's a little counterintuitive. The 80-20 rule says the following. 20% of any group is responsible for 80% of the output of that group. 20% are very productive, the other 80% are not. And it's true in everything about life. If you look at any work environment, 20% would be good, while 80% would be pedestrian, kind of towing the line, but not impressive, relative to the 20%. That's the key. The same holds true for expert advice you may get about how to become successful in business. 80% of that advice is likely to be pedestrian, but 20% 
is going to be insightful. Just because one has a great resume, it does not necessarily mean that they are also one of the top 20 percentiles. There is very little correlation between past track record of success and being one of the 20 percentiles. So whenever you listen to anybody, no matter what their resume looks like, you have to ask yourself, do I believe that that person is one of the 20 percenters or one of the 80 percenters? If you have a group of 100, 20 will produce 80% of the product. And then what I find even more amazing is that when you remove the 80 and you have the remaining select group of 20, the rule of 80-20 applies even to that how we select pool. In that group of 20, the top four produce 80% of the value of the product as well. So from the original group of 100, an incredible 64% of all the output comes from the four most productive people. That is correct. I will tell you a funny story here. My benefactor, mentor, and a key investor when I raised my own fund is a guy by the name of Charles Wong. And Charles Wong was the founder, CEO, and chairman of a company, Computer Associates. Charles pointed me to the significance of the 80-20 rule. He says, you know what? When I started Computer Associates, we were three people that designed programmed, and sold it to the market. We grew to become hundreds of millions in sales. It's still the same product, but I have now 200 people trying to change and maintain it. Says, why does it take 200 people to change and maintain something that it took three people to build? And he gave me the conclusion and he said, here is what happens. When a development team comes to me, and it comes and tells me we are late. We're not going to be able to deliver the deadline. We need more people. It says, I have a different way. I ask him to identify the 20 bottom, and I tell him lose them. I don't add, I subtract people. Those bottom 20 are actually a drag because they have to be supervised. So if you just get him out of the equation, the remaining 80 we'll be able to be much more productive. When COVID started, I called a buddy of mine who is an entrepreneur who had about 100 employees. And I asked him, what you doing? And he said, well, I can only have 20 essential employees at work. And I said, how productive are they? Oh, they're very productive. They probably produce 80% of the value out of the company. And I said, well, by that logic, why don't you just discard the other 80 employees? And he said, well, it's easy for you to say that, but the reality is, God forbid one of those 20 leaves, I'm toast. At least I got the other guys in reserve. And there's all these little projects, the little things that need to be done. You're right, they're not that productive. How do you think about that as a problem? It's so different from getting rid of your least productive 20 employees, is that we still need the other 80 guys, even if they're not particularly productive. First, your logic is consistent with what I described and it's proven by what he told you. But although he made a wise observation, it would be and feel counterintuitive to everybody else. The second observation is you couldn't possibly have in the world all businesses made up of 20 percentiles because 80% would be unemployed. 
80% of them are not as productive, but their performance is perfectly acceptable. The way that management works with the 20% is not by firing everybody else, but rather by compensating the 20% and giving them better promotions. They don't go the step farther that says, I could do only with the 20%, why don't I get rid of the 80 and make more money? The second observation, 80% becomes the norm. There are companies that only can be satisfied with the top 20. Consulting firms that do strategy work, investment bankers, that do very complicated transactions, the top law firms, they get rid of the bottom 20% every year. They literally will ask people to leave if they are ranked at the bottom. This way they always refresh and they will end up with a group that would be 20% everywhere else, but within their organization, even though they're all 20% are relative to the rest of the world, there'll still be the 2080 rule. Only one will be a genius minus, the other one will be a genius plus. That's how they separate at that point. Because those firms view their job as providing what I call insight. If they provided common sense kind of observations, there would be no need and role for them. So they're being called upon because the corporation perceives their problem to be something that they have tried to tackle and were unsuccessful and needed help in finding solutions. The missing element is what I call astuteness, insightfulness, that brain power. So when the consulting firms are being called upon, they have to be more insightful. They have to be smarter than the client on the average, or else they'll be unsuccessful in finding a solution. Because remember, very smart people in the firm that have already been working there in the industry for years have been unable to tackle and solve it. I want to discuss failure. Leo Malamed spoke on what happens next And he said what distinguishes the American capitalist system from the Chinese communist system is that there is a greater tolerance for failure. You may have done the right thing, it just didn't work. How do you think about tolerance of failure and management's willingness to accept it and lever it for the next project? I rarely look at failure as a reason to exclude anybody. However, I want to see some success. If I can be convinced that he had success, then failures become an advantage because it tells me that they have learned and they can be more careful and wiser in my project than a person that had never experienced failure. 30 years ago, Sound Brothers hired the Nobel Prize winner Myron Schulz, and I walked into his office and I said to Myron, hi, I'm Larry Bernstein. I'd like to work on a project with you. And he said, okay, what are your passions in business? And I said, tax policy and derivatives. And he said, this is going to work out just great. And it took chutzpah. And in your book, you showed chutzpah. You tell the story of when you were denied access to the school of your choice. So you snuck into the office of the head of Israel's Ministry of Education. I think you were 13 years old. And you walked in without an appointment And the minister looked at you strangely and said, who are you? What are you doing here, young man? And then you made your case as to why he had the power to change your life. And he said, all right, I'll make this happen. And you got into the school of your choice. How important is chutzpah? 
Chutzpah is great. I define chutzpah to be gumption that you are not bashful and portray confidence that you can do it. However, chutzpah by the world is defined in two dimensions. The other part of it is behaviorally doing something that the other person may not like. That's why it's called chutzpah. So the best answer is have the chutzpah, but don't deliver it in a chutzpah way. Deliver it in a way that is much more conducive. You don't want to come across as being a one big pain in the butt. Without that chutzpah, getting into the best school would not have happened for me. The Israeli minister probably appreciated that a 13-year-old kid had that kind of a chutzpah to go to the Minister of Education, sneak into his office, and make demands. But if I were not a kid, I'm not sure that I would have gotten a very sympathetic response. That again brings up, you need the chutzpah, but you need to be very cognizant in the delivery of that chutzpah, because without that delivery, you run a risk that you're not going to get your way. One of the great things about America is that you don't have to succeed in every moment. You can make mistakes. You can fall off track. You can graduate college in six years and not four, or not graduate at all. You can educate yourself. You didn't go to Harvard, David. You worked your way up from a lower middle class community in Israel and end up in the top echelon of American business. So tongue in cheek first, you better have some chutzpah. <laughs> I was never short on chutzpah by virtue of growing up in a country where it's pretty common. However, over time, I learned how to be more effective in communicating that you are capable and will be able to perform and just give me a chance without being offensive. You need to be able to compete with the rest of the world because really advancement in America and in a capitalistic system is being better than other people. You want to place yourself in the 20 percentiles. It's the ability to be more insightful than the average person that gets you there. I started always looking for the insights of things, noticing nuances that are not so obvious to other people, noticing exceptions that are not so obvious to other people, taking common wisdom statements that other people take for granted and showing, you know, yeah, you're right, but there is a twist to that. That really is what propelled me to the top. One of the case studies in your book relates to a junior high video that your daughter produced about a colorful singing toll booth operator named Jack. And in the video, your daughter used the song, Hit the Road, Jack. And she won the video contest to place the video on CNN. But the network said they needed copyright permission to use the song. And your daughter was informed by the personal assistant to the copyright holder that the owner had never given permission to use the song. What you told your daughter is that you need to get into the shoes of the copyright holder and understand his worldview and try to appreciate why he got to the answer no. And if you can figure out the worldview of your negotiating partner, then maybe you'll have a chance to come up with a creative solution to the problem. How do you put yourself in the shoes of your negotiating counterpart? That's a superb observation, and that's insightful advice that you just gave, which most people rarely follow. There is a significant difference in the way most people think when they solve problems. So instead of looking at what makes sense to you, try to project yourself 
into what makes sense from the other perspective. Start paying attention to the what, why, how, and everything else. Don't just be happy with, oh, they decided to agree. And you're happy, okay, I made a proposal, they agreed, what do I need to know? I spent my early life asking, what were the arguments? Who said yes, who said no? What were the arguments for yes? What were the arguments for no? What at the end affected the scale? What at the end were people able to convince with? And you get a whole different perspective from the other side, from what it took for the other people to make a decision. What advice do you have for negotiating a deal? If you want to be a good negotiator, you need to be able to negotiate both sides of the argument at the same time. Train your mind to start thinking in advance about the quality of your position. It's the difference between thinking about it from your perspective only and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. So to me, a good negotiator is somebody who is able to think in advance what the counter arguments might be, what the weaknesses of your own arguments are. It's not to be quick on your feet. Making up answers on the spot is basically a loser's game. David, you work hard, you dig, you try to find data, you ask lots of questions, you like to investigate things that have been overlooked by other people. How important is effort in terms of your success? I've been a very hardworking person, and I spend the time and effort and the energy physically. But that's not what contributed to my success. The determinative criteria are not to be physically lazy, but rather not to be intellectually lazy. Working hard is not critical. What is most important is to think hard. So... I outperform other people by not being intellectually lazy and outthinking other people, which in the book I call insightfulness. And I think that is really the secret. Always try to stay away from buying into the common wisdom, buying into the obvious. More importantly, one doesn't need to have a very high IQ to do it well. Pay attention to non-obvious things, that's where most people are lazy. They pay attention to the obvious thing, draw conclusions, and they think they have a solution. I will always focus on whether there are exceptions, whether there are nuances, and then suggest a different path. I had a book club years ago with Stuart Diamond, who is a professor who specializes in negotiation at the Wharton School. He's written a book entitled Getting More. Stuart Diamond suggested meeting your counterpart to try to figure out his perspective and all elements about his decision-making process. His advice, just keep asking more questions. And then you can use all that information you gathered to come up with a solution that fits both of your criteria. You gave your listeners the solution. I recognized earlier on that I needed to change my interpersonal skills. I needed to change my chutzpah. I hate to change my self-orientation where I was at the center and try to appreciate what people who are responsible for the outcome will think or do. I started asking questions. That's the answer. Because when you ask the what, why, and how, you will get a treasure trove of knowledge that you will be able to use 
to predict exactly what he will do and what the outcome is likely to be. David, I end each session on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? We have a very divisive society here in America. And everybody is arguing a single point of view and having to win. And then the other side of the argument, it's not a very healthy trend. I'm optimistic that it will most likely change because the business world is exactly opposite in thinking. You will never succeed in business, not listening to other people, not understanding how other people think. And you will fail if you start only with the proposition that what you want is important, what other people want is not important. So over time, those people who are in politics or the younger people who tend to fall more prey to that, as they transition into business, they will realize that behavior is a recipe for failure in business. They will not want to fail and they will start opening their minds just like I did when I was younger. So business is the counterforce to the politics. The younger generations are thought by academicians who I believe have the wrong perspective. Henry Ford said you can have any color car you want as long as it was black. In contrast, we had the Burger King philosophy, which was have a burger your way. Just tell us what you want, we'll make it. And I think it's that latter philosophy that is superior. And I think Ford learned his lesson when he refused to make a car other than black when competitors showed up with colored vehicles and took market share. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You cannot be closed-minded and be successful in business. You cannot not listening to experts and other arguments and be successful in business. And that is the missing ingredient in where we are headed right now in the political and media arena. But financial motivations are very strong, and that's the only chance we have to reverse the trend. If we change from a capitalistic system to a different system, a government-forced system that says it's my way or the highway. So by losing the capitalistic system, the economic engine that drives us, we will absolutely aggravate this downhill spiral trend towards being a very autocratic, very authoritarian society. Ari Cement and David Cromfeld, thank you so much for joining us today. That ends today's session. But let me make a plug for next week's show. I expect next week's program to be the most popular one of the year because it's on Bitcoin. Our speaker is Chris Giancarlo, and he is known in the Twitter universe as Crypto Dad. Chris is the former chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, or the CFTC, and he was responsible for approving Bitcoin futures, which are now traded on the CBO and CME. Chris is incredibly bullish on the future of cryptocurrencies, and he thinks that blockchain will disrupt the ways we do financial transactions and payments. Chris thinks we're on the cusp of a revolution that will change finance. And our younger generation has already embraced a lot of these ideas embedded in the crypto world, and the old guard needs to embrace change and fully engage. I recommend that you ask your kids to listen to the show and that everyone read Chris's new book, Crypto Dad, this holiday season. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, 
or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them at our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Goodbye.